Chapter 6 Ford Prefect hit the ground running. The ground was about three inches further from the ventilation shaft than he remembered it, so he misjudged the point at which he would hit the ground, started running too soon, stumbled awkwardly and twisted his ankle. Damn! He ran off down the corridor anyway, hobbling slightly. All over the building, alarms were erupting into their usual frenzy of excitement. He dived for cover behind the usual storage cabinets, glanced around to check that he was unseen, and started rapidly to fish around inside his satchel for the usual things he needed. His ankle, unusually, was hurting like hell. The ground was not only three inches further from the ventilation shaft than he remembered, it was also on a different planet than he remembered, but it was a three inches that had caught him by surprise. The offices of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were quite often shifted at very short notice to another planet, for reasons of local climate, local hostility, power bills or tax. But they were always reconstructed exactly the same way, almost to the very molecule. For many of the company's employees, the layout of their offices represented the only constant they knew in a severely distorted personal universe. Something, though, was odd. This was not in itself surprising, thought Ford as he pulled out his lightweight throwing towel. Virtually everything in his life was, to a greater or lesser extent, odd. It was just that this was odd in a slightly different way than he was used to things being odd, which was, well, strange. He couldn't quite get it into focus immediately. He got out his number three gauge prizing tool. The alarms were going in the same old way that he knew well. There was a kind of music to them that he could almost hum along to. That was all very familiar. The world outside had been a new one on Ford. He had not been to Sacco Piliahensha before, and he had liked it. It had a kind of carnival atmosphere to it. He took from his satchel a toy bow and arrow which he had bought in a street market. He had discovered that the reason for the carnival atmosphere on Sacco Piliahensha was that the local people were celebrating the annual feast of the Assumption of St Antwelm. St Antwelm had been, during his lifetime, a great and popular king who had made a great and popular assumption. What King Antwelm had assumed was that what everybody wanted all other things being equal, was to be happy and enjoy themselves and have the best possible time together. On his death, he had willed his entire personal fortune to financing an annual festival to remind everyone of this, with lots of good food and dancing and very silly games like Hunt the Wocket. His assumption had been such a brilliantly good one that he was made into a saint for it. Not only that, but all the people who had previously been made saints for doing things like being stoned to death in a thoroughly miserable way or living upside down in barrels of dung were instantly demoted and were now thought to be rather embarrassing. The familiar H-shaped building of the Hitchhiker's Guide offices rose above the outskirts of the city and Ford Prefect had broken into it in the familiar way. He always entered via the ventilation system rather than the main lobby, because the main lobby was patrolled by robots whose job it was to quiz incoming employees about their expense accounts. Ford Prefect's expense accounts were notoriously complex and difficult affairs, and he had found, on the whole, that the lobby robots were ill-equipped to understand the arguments he wished to put forward in relation to them. He preferred, therefore, to make his entrance by another route. This meant setting off nearly every alarm in the building, but not the one in the accounts department, which was the way that Ford preferred it. He hunkered down behind the storage cabinet, he licked the rubber suction cup of the toy arrow and then fitted it to the string of the bow. 
Within about 30 seconds, a security robot the size of a small melon came flying down the corridor at about waist height, scanning left and right for anything unusual as it did so. With impeccable timing, Ford shot the toy arrow across its path. The arrow flew across the corridor and stuck, wobbling, on the opposite wall. As it flew, the robot's sensors locked onto it instantly, and the robot twisted through 90 degrees to follow it, see what the hell it was and where it was going. This bought Ford one precious second, during which the robot was looking in the opposite direction from him. He hurled a towel over the flying robot and caught it. Because of the various sensory protuberances with which the robot was festooned, it couldn't manoeuvre inside the towel, and it just twitched back and forth without being able to turn and face its captor. Ford hauled it quickly towards him and pinned it down to the ground. It was beginning to whine pitifully. With one swift and practised movement, Ford reached under the towel with his number three gauge prizing tool and flipped off the small plastic panel on top of the robot which gave access to its logic circuits. Now logic is a wonderful thing, but it has, as the processes of evolution discovered, certain drawbacks. Anything that thinks logically can be fooled by something else which thinks at least as logically as it does. The easiest way to fool a completely logical robot is to feed it the same stimulus sequence over and over again so it gets locked in a loop. This was best demonstrated by the famous herring sandwich experiments conducted millennia ago at Mispuozo, the Maximegalon Institute of slowly and painfully working out the surprisingly obvious. A robot was programmed to believe that it liked herring sandwiches. This was actually the most difficult part of the whole experiment, once the robot had been programmed to believe that it liked herring sandwiches, a herring sandwich was placed in front of it, whereupon the robot thought to itself, ah, a herring sandwich, I like herring sandwiches. It would then bend over and scoop up the herring sandwich in its herring sandwich scoop and then straighten up again. Unfortunately for the robot, it was fashioned in such a way that the action of straightening up caused the herring sandwich to slip straight back off its herring sandwich scoop and fall onto the floor in front of the robot. Whereupon, the robot thought to itself, ah, a herring sandwich, etc., and repeated the same action over and over and over again. The only thing that prevented the herring sandwich from getting bored with the whole damn business and crawling off in search of other ways of passing the time was that the herring sandwich, being just a bit of dead fish between a couple of slices of bread, was marginally less alert to what was going on than was the robot. The scientists at the Institute thus discovered the driving force behind all change, development and innovation in life, which was this. Herring sandwiches. They published a paper to this effect, which was widely criticised as being extremely stupid. They checked their figures and realised that what they had actually discovered was boredom, or rather, the practical function of boredom. In a fever of excitement, they then went on to discover other emotions, like irritability, depression, reluctance, ickiness, and so on. The next big breakthrough came when they stopped using herring sandwiches, whereupon a whole welter of new emotions became suddenly available to them for study, such as relief, joy, friskiness, appetite, satisfaction, and most important of all, the desire for happiness. This was the biggest breakthrough of all. 
Vast wadges of complex computer code governing robot behaviour in all possible contingencies could be replaced very simply. All that robots needed was the capacity to be either bored or happy and a few conditions that needed to be satisfied in order to bring those states about. They would then work the rest out for themselves. The robot which Ford had got trapped under his towel was not, at the moment, a happy robot. It was happy when it could move about. It was happy when it could see other things. It was particularly happy when it could see other things moving about, particularly if the other things were moving about doing things they shouldn't do because it could then, with considerable delight, report them. Ford would soon fix that. He squatted over the robot and held it between his knees. The towel was still covering all of its sensory mechanisms, but Ford had now got its logic circuits exposed. The robot was whirring grungily and pettishly, but it could only fidget. It couldn't actually move. Using the prizing tool, Ford eased a small chip out from its socket. As soon as it came out, the robot went quiet and just sat there in a coma. The chip Ford had taken out was the one which contained the instructions for all the conditions that had to be fulfilled in order for the robot to feel happy. The robot would be happy when a tiny electrical charge from a point just to the left of the chip reached another point just to the right of the chip. The chip determined whether the charge got there or not. Ford pulled out a small length of wire that had been threaded into the towel. He dug one end of it into the top left hole of the chip socket and the other into the bottom right hole. That was all it took. Now the robot would be happy whatever happened. Ford quickly stood up and whisked the towel away. The robot rose ecstatically into the air, pursuing a kind of wriggly path. It turned and saw Ford. Mr Prefect, sir, I'm so happy to see you. Good to see you, little fella, said Ford. The robot rapidly reported back to its central control that everything was now for the best in this best of all possible worlds. The alarms rapidly quelled themselves and life returned to normal. At least, almost to normal. There was something odd about the place. The little robot was gurgling with electric delight. Ford hurried on down the corridor letting the thing bob along in his wake, telling him how delicious everything was and how happy it was to be able to tell him that. Ford, however, was not happy. He passed faces of people he didn't know. They didn't look like his sort of people. They were too well-groomed. Their eyes were too dead. Every time he thought he saw someone he recognised in the distance and hurried along to say hello, it would turn out to be someone else with an altogether neater hairstyle and a much more thrusting, purposeful look than, well, anybody Ford knew. A staircase had been moved a few inches to the left. A ceiling had been lowered slightly. A lobby had been remodelled. All these things were not worrying in themselves, though they were a little disorienting. The thing that was worrying was the decor. It used to be brash and glitzy. Expensive, because the guide sold so well through the civilised and post-civilised galaxy, but expensive and fun. Wild games machines lined the corridors, insanely painted grand pianos hung from ceilings, vicious sea creatures from the planet Viv reared up out of pools in tree-filled atria. Robot butlers in stupid shirts roamed the corridors, seeking whose hands they might press frothing drinks into. People used to have pet vast dragons on leads and terraspons on perches in their offices. People knew how to have a good time, and if they didn't, there were courses they could sign up for which would put that right. 
There was none of that now. Somebody had been through the place doing some iniquitous kind of taste job on it. Ford turned sharply into a small alcove, cupped his hand and yanked the flying robot in with him. He squatted down and peered at the burbling cybernaut. What's been happening here? he demanded. Oh, just the nicest things, sir. Just the nicest possible things. Can I sit on your lap, please? No, said Ford, brushing the thing away. It was overjoyed to be spumed in this way and started to bob and burble and swoon. Ford grabbed it again and stuck it firmly in the air a foot in front of his face. It tried to stay where it was put, but couldn't help quivering slightly. Something's changed, hasn't it? Ford hissed. Oh, yes, squealed the little robot. In the most fabulous and wonderful way. I feel so good about it. Well, what was it like before, then? Oh, scrumptious. But you like the way it's changed, demanded Ford. I like everything, moaned the robot. Especially when you shout at me like that. Do it again, please. Just tell me what's happened. Oh, thank you, thank you. Ford sighed. OK, OK, panted the robot. The guide has been taken over. There's a new management. It's all so gorgeous I could just melt. The old management was also fabulous, of course, though I'm not sure if I thought so at the time. That was before you had a bit of wire stuck in your head. How true, how wonderfully true, how wonderfully, bubblingly, frothingly, burstingly true. What a truly ecstasy-inducingly correct observation. What's happened, insisted Ford. Who is this new management? When did they take over? I, oh, never mind, he added, as the little robot started to gibber with uncontrollable joy and rub itself against his knee. I'll go and find out for myself. Ford held himself at the door of the editor-in-chief's office, tucked himself into a tight ball as the frame splintered and gave way, rolled rapidly across the floor to where the drinks trolley laden with some of the galaxy's most potent and expensive beverages habitually stood, seized hold of the trolley and, using it to give himself cover, trundled it and himself across the main exposed part of the office floor to where the valuable and extremely rude statue of Leda and the octopus stood and took shelter behind it. Meanwhile, the little security robot, entering at chest height, was suicidally delighted to draw gunfire away from Ford. That, at least, was the plan, and a necessary one. The current editor-in-chief, Stagyar Zil Doggo, was a dangerously unbalanced man who took a homicidal view of contributing staff turning up in his office without pages of fresh-proofed copy and had a battery of laser-guided guns linked to special scanning devices in the doorframe to deter anybody who was merely bringing extremely good reasons why they hadn't written any. Thus was a high level of output maintained. Unfortunately, the drinks trolley wasn't there. Ford hurled himself desperately sideways and somersaulted towards the statue of Leda and the octopus, which also wasn't there. He rolled and hurtled around the room in a kind of random panic, tripped, span, hit the window, which fortunately was built to withstand rocket attacks, rebounded and fell in a bruised and winded heap behind a smart grey crushed leather sofa, which hadn't been there before. After a few seconds, he slowly peeked up above the top of the sofa. As well as there being no drinks trolley and no lader in the octopus, there had also been a startling absence of gunfire. He frowned. This was all utterly wrong. Mr Prefect, I assume, 
said a voice. The voice came from a smooth-faced individual behind a large ceramotique bonded desk. Stagyarzil Doggo may well have been a hell of an individual, but no one, for a whole variety of reasons, would ever have called him smooth-faced. This was not Stagyar Zildogo. I assume from the manner of your entrance that you do not have new material for the, uh, guide at the moment, said the smooth-faced individual. He was sitting with his elbows resting on the table and holding his fingertips together in a manner which, inexplicably, has never been made a capital offence. I've been busy, said Ford, rather weakly. He staggered to his feet, brushing himself down. Then he thought, what the hell was he saying things weakly for? He had to get on top of this situation. He had to find out who the hell this person was, and he suddenly thought of a way of doing it. Who the hell are you? he demanded. I am your new editor-in-chief. That is, if we decide to retain your services. My name is Van Hall. He didn't put his hand out. He just added, What have you done to that security robot? The little robot was rolling very, very slowly around the ceiling and moaning quietly to itself. I've made it very happy, snapped Ford. It's a kind of mission I have. Where's Stagyar? More to the point, where's his drinks trolley? Mr. Zildogo is no longer with this organisation. His drinks trolley is, I imagine, helping to console him for this fact. Organisation? yelled Ford. Organisation? What a bloody stupid word for a setup like this! Precisely our sentiments. Understructured, over-resourced, under-managed, over-inebriated. And that, said Hall, was just the editor. I'll do the jokes, snarled Ford. No, said Hall. You will do the restaurant column. He tossed a piece of plastic onto the desk in front of him. Ford did not move to pick it up. You what? said Ford. No, me Hal. You prefect. You do restaurant column. Me editor. Me sit here tell you you do restaurant column. You get. Restaurant column, said Ford, too bewildered to be really angry yet. Sit down, prefect, said Hal. He swung around in his swivel chair, got to his feet, and stood staring out at the tiny specks enjoying the carnival twenty-three stories below. Time to get this business on its feet, prefect, he snapped. We at Infinidim Enterprises are... You at what? Infinidim Enterprises... We have bought out the guide. Infinidim? We spend millions on that name, Prefect. Start liking it, or start packing. Ford shrugged. He had nothing to pack. The galaxy is changing, said Hal. We've got to change with it. Go with the market. The market is moving up. New aspirations, new technology... The future is... Don't tell me about the future, said Ford. I've been all over the future. Spend half my time there. It's the same as anywhere else. Anywhen else. Whatever. Just the same old stuff in faster cars and smellier air. That's one future, said Hal. That's your future, if you accept it. You've got to learn to think multidimensionally. There are limitless futures stretching out in every direction from this moment. And from this moment, 
and from this, billions of them, bifurcating every instant, every possible position of every possible electron balloons out into billions of probabilities, billions and billions of shining, gleaming futures. You know what that means. You're dribbling down your chin. Billions and billions of markets. I see, said Ford. So you sell billions and billions of guides. No, said Hal, reaching for his handkerchief and not finding one. Excuse me, he said, but this gets me so excited. Ford handed him his towel. The reason we don't sell billions and billions of guides, continued Hal, after wiping his mouth, is the expense. What we do is we sell one guide billions and billions of times. We exploit the multidimensional nature of the universe to cut down on manufacturing costs, and we don't sell to penniless hitchhikers. What a stupid notion that was! Find the one section of the market that, more or less by definition, doesn't have any money, and try and sell to it new. We sell to the affluent business traveller and his vacationing wife in a billion, billion different futures. This is the most radical, dynamic, and thrusting business venture in the entire multidimensional infinity of space-time probability ever. And you want me to be its restaurant critic, said Ford. We would value your input. Kill, shouted Ford. He shouted it at his towel. The towel leapt up out of Harl's hands. This was not because it had any motive force of its own, but because Harl was so startled at the idea that it might. The next thing that startled him was the sight of Ford Prefect hurtling across the desk at him fists first. In fact, Ford was just lunging for the credit card, but you don't get to occupy the sort of position that Harl occupied in the sort of organisation in which Harl occupied it without developing a healthily paranoid view of life. He took the sensible precaution of hurling himself backwards and striking his head a sharp blow on the rocket-proof glass, then subsided into a series of worrying and highly personal dreams. Ford lay on the desk, surprised at how swimmingly everything had gone. He glanced quickly at the piece of plastic he now held in his hand. It was a dino-charge credit card with his name already embossed on it and an expiry date two years from now, and was possibly the single most exciting thing Ford had ever seen in his life. Then he clambered over the desk to see to Harl. He was breathing fairly easily. It occurred to Ford that he might breathe more easily yet without the weight of his wallet bearing down on his chest, so he slipped it out of Harl's breast pocket and flipped through it. Fair amount of cash. Credit tokens, ultra-golf club membership, other club memberships, Photos of someone's wife and family, presumably Harl's, but it was hard to be sure these days. Busy executives often didn't have time for a full-time wife and family and would just rent them for weekends. Ha! He couldn't believe what he'd just found. He slowly drew out from the wallet a single and insanely exciting piece of plastic that was nestling amongst a bunch of receipts. It wasn't insanely exciting to look at. It was rather dull, in fact. It was smaller and a little thicker than a credit card and semi-transparent. If you held it up to the light, you could see a lot of holographically encoded information and images buried pseudo-inches deep beneath its surface. 
It was an identities, and was a very naughty and silly thing for Harl to have lying around in his wallet, though it was perfectly understandable. There were so many different ways in which you were required to provide absolute proof of your identity these days that life could easily become extremely tiresome just from that factor alone, never mind the deeper existential problems of trying to function as a coherent consciousness in an epistemologically ambiguous physical universe. Just look at cash point machines, for instance. Cues of people standing around waiting to have their fingerprints read, their retinas scanned, bits of skin scraped from the nape of the neck and undergoing instant, or nearly instant, a good six or seven seconds in tedious reality, genetic analysis, then having to answer trick questions about members of their family they didn't even remember they had and about their recorded preferences for tablecloth colours. And that was just to get a bit of spare cash for the weekend. If you were trying to raise a loan for a jet car, sign a missile treaty or pay an entire restaurant bill, things could get really trying. Hence the identities. This encoded every single piece of information about you, your body and your life into one all-purpose machine-readable card that you could then carry around in your wallet and therefore represented technology's greatest triumph to date over both itself and plain common sense. Ford pocketed it. A remarkably good idea had just occurred to him. He wondered how long Harl would remain unconscious. Hey! he shouted to the little melon-sized robot still slobbering with euphoria up on the ceiling. You want to stay happy? The robot gurgled that it did. Then stick with me and do everything I tell you without fail. The robot said that it was quite happy where it was up on the ceiling, thank you very much. It had never realised before how much sheer titillation there was to be got from a good ceiling, and it wanted to explore its feelings about ceilings in greater depth. You stay there, said Ford, and you'll soon be recaptured and have your conditional chip replaced. You want to stay happy? Come now. The robot let out a long, heartfelt sigh of impassioned tristesse and sank reluctantly away from the ceiling. Listen, said Ford, can you keep the rest of the security system happy for a few minutes? One of the joys of true happiness, trilled the robot, is sharing. I brim, I froth, I overflow with... OK, said Ford. Just spread a little happiness around the security network. Don't give it any information, just make it feel good so it doesn't feel the need to ask for any. He picked up his towel and ran cheerfully for the door. Life had been a little dull of late. It showed every sign now of becoming extremely fruity. Chapter 7 Arthur Dent had been in some hellholes in his life, but he had never before seen a spaceport which had a sign saying, Even travelling despondently is better than arriving here. To welcome visitors, the arrivals hall featured a picture of the president of Now What, smiling. It was the only picture anybody could find of him, and it had been taken shortly after he had shot himself. So although the photo had been retouched as well as could be managed, the smile it wore was rather a ghastly one. The side of his head had been drawn back in in crayon. No replacement had been found for the photograph because no replacement had been found for the president. There was only one ambition which anyone on the planet ever had, and that was to leave. Arthur checked himself into a small motel on the outskirts of town and sat glumly on the bed, which was damp and flipped through the little information brochure, which was also damp. 
It said that the planet of Nowot had been named after the opening words of the first settlers to arrive there after struggling across light years of space to reach the furthest unexplored outreaches of the galaxy. The main town was called Owell. There weren't any other towns to speak of. Settlement on Nowot had not been a success, and the sort of people who actually wanted to live on Nowot were not the sort of people you would want to spend time with. Trading was mentioned in the brochure. The main trade that was carried out was in the skins of the Nowotian Boghog, but it wasn't a very successful one because no one in their right minds would want to buy a Nowotian Boghog skin. The trade only hung on by its fingernails because there was always a significant number of people in the galaxy who were not in their right minds. Arthur had felt very uncomfortable looking around at some of the other occupants of the small passenger compartment of the ship. The brochure described some of the history of the planet. Whoever had written it had obviously started out trying to drum up a little enthusiasm for the place by stressing that it wasn't actually cold and wet all the time, but could find little positive to add to this, so the tone of the piece quickly degenerated into savage irony. It talked about the early years of settlement. It said that the major activities pursued on Nowot were those of catching, skinning and eating Nowotian bog hogs, which were the only extant form of animal life on Nowot, all other having long ago died of despair. The bog hogs were tiny, vicious creatures, and the small margin by which they fell short of being completely inedible was the margin by which life on the planet subsisted. So what were the rewards, however small, that made life on Nowot worth living? Well, there weren't any. Not a one. Even making yourself some protective clothing out of bog-hog skins was an exercise in disappointment and futility, since the skins were unaccountably thin and leaky. This caused a lot of puzzled conjecture amongst the settlers. What was the bog-hog's secret of keeping warm? If anyone had ever learned the language the bog-hogs spoke to each other, they would have discovered that there was no trick. The bog-hogs were as cold and wet as anyone else on the planet. No one had had the slightest desire to learn the language of the bog-hogs for the simple reason that these creatures communicated by biting each other very hard on the thigh. Life on Nowot being what it was, most of what a bog-hog might have to say about it could easily be signified by these means. Arthur flipped through the brochure till he found what he was looking for. At the back, there were a few maps of the planet. They were fairly rough and ready because they weren't likely to be of much interest to anyone, but they told him what he wanted to know. He didn't recognise it at first because the maps were the other way up from the way he would have expected and looked, therefore, thoroughly unfamiliar. Of course, up and down, north and south, are absolutely arbitrary designations, but we are used to seeing things the way we are used to seeing them, and Arthur had to turn the maps upside down to make sense of them. There was one huge landmass off on the upper left-hand side of the page which tapered down to a tiny waist and then ballooned out again like a large comma. On the right-hand side was a collection of large shapes jumbled familiarly together. The outlines were not exactly the same, and Arthur didn't know if this was because the map was so rough, or because the sea level was higher, or because, well, things were just different here. But the evidence was inarguable. This was definitely the Earth. Or rather, it most definitely was not. It merely looked a lot like the Earth and occupied the same coordinates in space-time. 
What coordinates it occupied in probability was anybody's guess. He sighed. This, he realised, was about as close to home as he was likely to get, which meant that he was about as far from home as he could possibly be. Glumly, he slapped the brochure shut and wondered what on earth he was going to do next. He allowed himself a hollow laugh at what he had just thought. He looked at his old watch and shook it a bit to wind it. It had taken him, according to his own time scale, a year of hard travelling to get here. A year since the accident in hyperspace in which Fenchurch had completely vanished. One minute she had been sitting there next to him in the slump jet. The next minute the ship had done a perfectly normal hyperspace hop, and when he had next looked, she was not there. The seat wasn't even warm. Her name wasn't even on the passenger list. The space line had been wary of him when he had complained. A lot of awkward things happen in space travel, and a lot of them make a lot of money for lawyers. But when they had asked him what galactic sector he and Fenchurch had been from, and he had said ZZ9 plural Z Alpha, they had relaxed completely in a way that Arthur wasn't at all sure he liked. They even laughed a little, though sympathetically, of course. They pointed to the clause in the ticket contract, which said that the entities whose lifespans had originated in any of the plural zones were advised not to travel in hyperspace and did so at their own risk. Everybody, they said, knew that. They tittered slightly and shook their heads. As Arthur had left their offices, he found he was trembling slightly. Not only had he lost Fenchurch in the most complete and utter way possible, but he felt that the more time he spent away out in the galaxy, the more it seemed that the number of things he didn't know anything about actually increased. Just as he was lost for a moment in these numb memories, a knock came on the door of his motel room, which then opened immediately. A fat and dishevelled man came in carrying Arthur's one small case. He got as far as, Where shall I put? when there was a sudden violent flurry and he collapsed heavily against the door, trying to beat off a small and mangy creature that had leapt snarling out of the wet night and buried its teeth in his thigh, even through the thick layers of leather padding he wore there. There was a brief, ugly confusion of jabbering and thrashing. The man shouted frantically and pointed. Arthur grabbed a hefty stick that stood next to the door expressly for this purpose and beat at the bog hog with it. The bog hog suddenly disengaged and limped backwards, dazed and forlorn. It turned anxiously in the corner of the room, its tail tucked up right under its back legs, and stood looking nervously up at Arthur, jerking its head awkwardly and repeatedly to one side. Its jaw seemed to be dislocated. It cried a little and scraped its damp tail across the floor. By the door, the fat man with Arthur's suitcase was sitting and cursing, trying to staunch the flow of blood from his thigh. His clothes were already wet from the rain. Arthur stared at the bog hog, not knowing what to do. The bog hog looked at him questioningly, it tried to approach him, making mournful little whimpering noises. It moved its jaw painfully. It made a sudden leap for Arthur's thigh, but its dislocated jaw was too weak to get a grip and it sank, whining sadly down to the floor. The fat man jumped to his feet, grabbed the stick, beat the bog hog's brains into a sticky, pulpy mess on the thin carpet and then stood there breathing heavily as if daring the animal to move again just once. 
A single bog-hog eyeball sat looking reproachfully at Arthur from out of the mashed ruins of its head. "'What do you think it was trying to say?' asked Arthur in a small voice. "'Ah, nothing much,' said the man. "'Just his way of trying to be friendly. "'This is just our way of being friendly back,' he added, gripping the stick. "'When's the next flight out?' asked Arthur. "'Thought you'd only just arrived,' said the man. "'Yes,' said Arthur. "'It was only going to be a brief visit. "'I just wanted to see if this was the right place or not. "'Sorry.' "'You mean you're on the wrong planet?' said the man lugubriously. "'Funny how many people say that, especially the people who live here.' He eyed the remains of the bog-hog with a deep, ancestral resentment. "'Oh, no,' said Arthur. "'It's the right planet, all right.' He picked up the damp brochure lying on the bed and put it in his pocket. "'It's OK, thanks. I'll take that,' he said, taking his case from the man. He went to the door and looked out into the cold, wet night. "'Yes, it's the right planet, all right,' he said again. "'Right planet.' Wrong universe. A single bird wheeled in the sky above him as he set off back for the spaceport. Chapter 8 Ford had his own code of ethics. It wasn't much of one, but it was his, and he stuck by it, more or less. One rule he made was never to buy his own drinks. He wasn't sure if that counted as an ethic, but you have to go with what you've got. He was also firmly and utterly opposed to all and any forms of cruelty to any animals whatsoever except geese. And furthermore, he would never steal from his employers. Well, not exactly steal. If his account supervisor didn't start to hyperventilate and put out a seal-all-exit security alert when Ford handed in his expenses claim, then Ford felt he wasn't doing his job properly. But actually stealing was another thing. That was biting the hand that feeds you, sucking very hard on it, even nibbling it in an affectionate kind of a way was okay, but you didn't actually bite it. Not when that hand was the guide. The guide was something sacred and special. But that, thought Ford, as he ducked and weaved his way down through the building, was about to change. And they had only themselves to blame. Look at all this stuff. Lines of neat grey office cubicles and executive workstation pods. The whole place was dreary with the hum of memos and minutes of meetings flitting through its electronic networks. Out in the street they were playing Hunt the Wocket for Zark's sake, but here in the very heart of the guide offices no one was even recklessly kicking a ball around the corridors or wearing inappropriately coloured beachwear. Infinidim Enterprises, Ford snarled to himself as he stalked rapidly down one corridor after another. Door after door magically opened to him without question. Elevators took him happily to places they should not. Ford was trying to pursue the most tangled and complicated route he could, heading generally downwards through the building. His happy little robot took care of everything, spreading waves of acquiescent joy through all the security circuits it encountered. Ford thought it needed a name, and decided to call it Emily Saunders, after a girl he had very fond memories of. Then he thought that Emily Saunders was an absurd name for a security robot, and decided to call it Colin instead, after Emily's dog. He was moving deep into the bowels of the building now, into areas he had never entered before, areas of higher and higher security. He was beginning to encounter puzzled looks from the operatives he passed. At this level of security, you didn't even call them people anymore. 
and they were probably doing stuff that only operatives would do. When they went home to their families in the evening, they became people again, and when their little children looked up to them with their sweet shining eyes and said, Daddy, what did you do all day today? They just said, I performed my duties as an operative, and left it at that. The truth of the matter was that all sorts of highly dodgy stuff went on behind the cheery, happy-go-lucky front that the guide liked to put up, or used to like to put up before this new Infinidim Enterprises bunch marched in and started to make the whole thing highly dodgy. There were all kinds of tax scams and rackets and graft and shady deals supporting the shining edifice, and down in the secure research and data processing levels of the building was where it all went on. Every few years the guide would set up its business, and indeed its building, on a new world, and all would be sunshine and laughter for a while, as the guide would put down its roots in the local culture and economy, provide employment, a sense of glamour and adventure, and, in the end, not quite as much actual revenue as the locals had expected. When the guide moved on, taking its building with it, it left a little like a thief in the night. Exactly like a thief in the night, in fact. It usually left in the very early hours of the morning, and the following day there always turned out to be a very great deal of stuff missing. Whole cultures and economies would collapse in its wake, often within a week, leaving once thriving planets desolate and shell-shocked, but still somehow feeling they had been part of some great adventure. The operatives, who shot puzzled glances at Ford as he marched on into the depths of the building's most sensitive areas, were reassured by the presence of Colin, who was flying along with him in a buzz of emotional fulfilment and easing his path for him at every stage. Alarms were starting to go off in other parts of the building. Perhaps that meant that Van Hal had already been discovered, which might be a problem. Ford had been hoping he would be able to slip the identity ease back into his pocket before he came round. Well, that was a problem for later, and he didn't for the moment have the faintest idea how he was going to solve it. For the moment, he wasn't going to worry. Wherever he went with little Colin, he was surrounded by a cocoon of sweetness and light, and, most importantly, willing and acquiescent elevators and positively obsequious doors. Ford even began to whistle, which was probably his mistake. Nobody likes a whistler, particularly not the divinity that shapes our ends. The next door wouldn't open. And that was a pity, because it was the very one that Ford had been making for. It stood there before him, grey and resolutely closed, with a sign on it saying, No admittance. Not even to authorised personnel. You are wasting your time here. Go away. Colin reported that the doors had been getting generally a lot grimmer down in these lower reaches of the building. They were about ten storeys below ground level now. The air was refrigerated and the tasteful grey hessian wall weave had given way to brutal grey bolted steel walls. Colin's rampant euphoria had subsided into a kind of determined cheeriness. He said that he was beginning to tire a little. It was taking all his energy to pump the slightest bonhomie whatsoever into the doors down here. Ford kicked at the door. It opened. Mixture of pleasure and pain, he muttered, always does the trick. He walked in and Colin flew in after him. Even with a wire stuck straight into his pleasure electrode, his happiness was a nervous kind of happiness. He bobbed around a little. The room was small, grey and humming. This was the nerve centre of the entire guide. The computer terminals that lined the grey walls were windows onto every aspect of the guide's operations. 
Here, on the left-hand side of the room, reports were gathered over the sub-Ethernet from field researchers in every corner of the galaxy, fed straight up into the network of sub-editors' offices, where they had all the good bits cut out by secretaries because the sub-editors were out having lunch. The remaining copy would then be shot across to the other half of the building, the other leg of the H, which was the legal department. The legal department would cut out anything that was still even remotely good from what remained and fire it back to the offices of the executive editors, who were also out at lunch. So the editor's secretaries would read it and say it was stupid and cut most of what was left. When any of the editors finally staggered in from lunch, they would exclaim, What is this feeble crap that X, where X was the name of the field researcher in question, has sent us from halfway across the bloody galaxy? What's the point of having somebody spending three whole orbital periods out in the bloody Gakrakaka mine zones with all that stuff going on out there if this load of anemic squitter is the best he can be bothered to send us? Disallow his expenses. What should we do with the copy? The secretary would ask. Ah, put it out over the network. Got to have something going out there. I've got a headache. I'm going home. So the edited copy would go for one last slash and burn through the legal department and then be sent back down here where it would be broadcast out over the sub-ethernet for instantaneous retrieval anywhere in the galaxy. That was handled by equipment which was monitored and controlled by the terminals on the right-hand side of the room. Meanwhile, the order to disallow the researcher's expenses was relayed down to the computer terminal stuck off in the right-hand corner, and it was to this terminal that Ford Prefect now swiftly made his way. If you are reading this on planet Earth, then A, good luck to you, there is an awful lot of stuff you don't know anything about, but you are not alone in this. It's just that in your case, the consequences of not knowing any of this stuff are particularly terrible, but then, hey, that's just the way the cookie gets completely stomped on and obliterated. B... Don't imagine you know what a computer terminal is. A computer terminal is not some clunky old television with a typewriter in front of it. It is an interface where the mind and body can connect with the universe and move bits of it about. Ford hurried over to the terminal, sat in front of it, and quickly dipped himself into its universe. It wasn't the normal universe he knew. It was a universe of densely enfolded worlds, of wild topographies, towering mountain peaks, heart-stopping ravines, of moons shattering off into seahorses, hurtful, blurting crevices, silently heaving oceans and bottomless, hurtling, hooping funts. He held still to get his bearings. He controlled his breathing, closed his eyes and looked again. So this was where accountants spent their time. There was clearly more to them than met the eye. He looked around carefully, trying not to let it all swell and swim and overwhelm him. He didn't know his way around this universe. He didn't even know the physical laws that determined its dimensional extents or behaviours, but his instinct told him to look for the most outstanding feature he could detect and make towards it. Way off in some indistinguishable distance, was it a mile or a million or a mote in his eye, was a stunning peak that overarched the sky, climbed and climbed and spread out in flowering aigrettes, an ornamental tuft of plumes, agglomerates, a jumbled mass, and archimandrites, a cleric ranking below a bishop. He weltered towards it, hooling and thurling, and at last reached it in a meaningless long umthinth of time. He clung to it, arms outspread, gripping tightly onto its roughly gnarled and pitted surface, once he was certain that he was secure, he made the hideous mistake of looking down. 
While he had been weltering, hooling and thirling, the distance beneath him had not bothered him unduly, but now that he was gripping, the distance made his heart wilt and his brain bend. His fingers were white with pain and tension. His teeth were grinding and twisting against each other beyond his control. His eyes turned inwards with waves from the willowing extremities of nausea. With an immense effort of will and faith, he simply let go and pushed. He felt himself float, away, and then, counterintuitively, upwards, and upwards. He threw his shoulders back, let his arms drop, gazed upwards and let himself be drawn loosely, higher and higher. Before long, insofar as such terms had any meaning in this virtual universe, a ledge loomed up ahead of him on which he could grip and onto which he could clamber. He rose, he gripped, he clambered. He panted a little. This was all a little stressful. He held tightly onto the ledge as he sat. He wasn't certain if this was to prevent himself from falling down off it or rising up from it, but he needed something to grip onto as he surveyed the world in which he found himself. The whirling, turning height span him and twisted his brain in upon itself until he found himself, eyes closed, whimpering and hugging the hideous wall of towering rock. He slowly brought his breathing back under control again. He told himself repeatedly that he was just in a graphic representation of a world, a virtual universe, a simulated reality. He could snap back out of it at any moment. He snapped back out of it. He was sitting in a blue leatherette, foam-filled, swivel-seated office chair in front of a computer terminal. He relaxed. He was clinging to the face of an impossibly high peak perched on a narrow ledge above a drop of brain-swivelling dimensions. It wasn't just the landscape being so far beneath him. He wished it would stop undulating and waving. He had to get a grip. Not on the rock wall, that was an illusion. He had to get a grip on the situation, be able to look at the physical world he was in while drawing himself out of it emotionally. He clenched inwardly, and then, just as he had let go of the rock face itself, he let go of the idea of the rock face and let himself just sit there clearly and freely. He looked out at the world. He was breathing well. He was cool. He was in charge again. He was in a four-dimensional topological model of the guide's financial systems, and somebody or something would very shortly want to know why. And here they came. Swooping through virtual space towards him came a small flock of mean and steely-eyed creatures with pointy little heads, pencil moustaches and querulous demands as to who he was, what he was doing there, what his authorization was, what the authorization of his authorising agent was, what his inside leg measurement was, and so on. Laser light flickered all over him as if he was a packet of biscuits at a supermarket checkout. The heavier-duty laser guns were held, for the moment, in reserve. The fact that all of this was happening in virtual space made no difference. Being virtually killed by a virtual laser in virtual space is just as effective as the real thing, because you are as dead as you think you are. The laser readers were becoming very agitated as they flickered over his fingerprints, his retina and the follicle pattern where his hairline was receding. They didn't like what they were finding at all. The chattering and screeching of highly personal and insolent questions was rising in pitch. 
A little surgical steel scraper was reaching out towards the skin at the nape of his neck when Ford, holding his breath and praying very slightly, pulled Van Hal's identities out of his pocket and waved it in front of them. Instantly, every laser was diverted to the little card and swept backwards and forwards over it and in it, examining and reading every molecule. Then, just as suddenly, they stopped. The entire flock of little virtual inspectors snapped to attention. Nice to see you, Mr. Hall, they said in smarmy unison. Is there anything we can do for you? Ford smiled a slow and vicious smile. Do you know, he said, I rather think there is. Five minutes later, he was out of there. About thirty seconds to do the job, and three minutes thirty to cover his tracks. He could have done anything he liked in the virtual structure, more or less. He could have transferred ownership of the entire organisation into his own name, but he doubted if that would have gone unnoticed. He didn't want it anyway. It would have meant responsibility, working late nights at the office, not to mention massive and time-consuming fraud investigations and a fair amount of time in jail. He wanted something that nobody other than the computer would notice. That was the bit that took 30 seconds. The thing that took 3 minutes 30 was programming the computer not to notice that it had noticed anything. It had to want not to know about what Ford was up to, and then he could safely leave the computer to rationalise its own defences against the information ever emerging. It was a programming technique that had been reverse-engineered from the sort of psychotic mental blocks that otherwise perfectly normal people had been observed invariably to develop when elected to high political office. The other minute was spent discovering that the computer system already had a mental block. A big one. He would never have discovered it if he hadn't been busy engineering a mental block himself. He came across a whole slew of smooth and plausible denial procedures and diversionary subroutines exactly where he had been planning to install his own. The computer denied all knowledge of them, of course, then blankly refused to accept that there was anything even to deny knowledge of, and was generally so convincing that even Ford almost found himself thinking he must have made a mistake. He was impressed. He was so impressed, in fact, that he didn't bother to install his own mental block procedures, he just set up calls to the ones that were already there, which then called themselves when questioned, and so on. He quickly set about debugging the little bits of code he had installed himself, only to discover they weren't there. Cursing, he searched all over for them, but could find no trace of them at all. He was just about to start installing them all over again when he realised that the reason he couldn't find them was that they were working already. He grinned with satisfaction. He tried to discover what the computer's other mental block was all about, but it seemed, not unnaturally, to have a mental block about it. He could no longer find any trace of it at all, in fact. It was that good. He wondered if he had been imagining it. He wondered if he had been imagining that it was something to do with something in the building and something to do with the number 13. He ran a few tests. Yes, he had obviously been imagining it. No time for fancy routes now. There was obviously a major security alert in progress. Ford took the elevator up to the ground floor to change to the express elevators. He had somehow to get the identities back into Hull's pocket before it was missed. How, he didn't know. The doors of the elevator slid open to reveal a large posse of security guards and robots poised, waiting for it and brandishing filthy-looking weapons. They ordered him out. With a shrug, he stepped forward. 
they all pushed rudely past him, into the elevator, which took them down to continue their search for him on the lower levels. This was fun, thought Ford, giving Colin a friendly pat. Colin was about the first genuinely useful robot Ford had ever encountered. Colin bobbed along in the air in front of him in a lather of cheerful ecstasy. Ford was glad he'd named him after a dog. He was highly tempted just to leave at that point and hope for the best, but he knew that the best had a far greater chance of actually occurring if Hal did not discover that his identities was missing. He had somehow, surreptitiously, to return it. They went to the express elevators. Hi, said the elevator they got into. Hi, said Ford. Where can I take you folks today? said the elevator. Floor 23, said Ford. Seems to be a popular floor today, said the elevator. Hmm, thought Ford, not liking the sound of that at all. The elevator lit up the 23rd floor on its floor display and started to zoom upwards. Something about the floor display tweaked at Ford's mind, but he couldn't catch what it was and forgot about it. He was more worried about the idea of the floor he was going to being a popular one. He hadn't really thought through how he was going to deal with whatever it was that was happening up there because he had no idea what he was going to find. He would just have to busk it. They were there. The doors slid open. Ominous quiet. Empty corridor. There was the door to Harl's office with a slight layer of dust around it. Ford knew that this dust consisted of billions of tiny molecular robots that had crawled out of the woodwork, built each other, rebuilt the door, disassembled each other and then crept back into the woodwork again and just waited for damage. Ford wondered what kind of life that was, but not for long, because he was a lot more concerned about what his own life was like at that moment. He took a deep breath and started his run. <laughs>